Get down with D and D. 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 I'm down with D and D. Who's down with D and D? Are you ready to get down with some D and D? I know I am, and I am joined as I am always joined by the magnificent, marvelous, motivated Maverick, Mad Wizard, Merwin. What is up, Sean? Motivated is right, Chris. Just got back from Winter Fantasy. Lots of great things on the horizon, and I have written more words since Winter Fantasy. Okay, I've written a lot of words since Winter Fantasy. <laughs> a lot of words since Winter Fantasy. Not not the most in your life, but but many many words, right? Many many words, yes. All right, well, let's uh, let's get into a few things before we get into our topic for the day, which is we're going to talk about prepping and running convention games. Uh, first big thing is Matt Coville's Kickstarter. Matt Coville's Kickstarter, last time I looked, was, um, well, it's 130000 more than it was before, because last time I looked, it was 802000 Now it's $929,000. Yeah, it's very, very close to the million-dollar mark. And you, while we were at Winter Fantasy, you sent me a, a message, and I can't repeat it since we are a family-friendly um, family-friendly podcast but it did note surprise and awe i believe i will pg-13 myself real quick this is amazingly insane this is amazingly insane yes that is exactly what you said exactly one word Uh uh-huh so i just changed the word so it's almost a million it's five days in uh, you get the Strongholds and Followers hardcover or PDF. You get stickers. You get a T-shirt. There's a leather hardcover. There's a, a possible level that you can get five Gemstone Dragon Minis. There's more stretch goals as they, uh, you know, get past day five, which is almost a million dollars. It's it's crazy. Like, it's this Kickstarter um, for a book, but really it's a Kickstarter for Matt Colville and his crew to stream. Now, if you don't know who Matt Colville is, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, Sean, you want to talk about the $100, the $125 level? Yeah, so just if you look at, at the physical products you get, it, it looks like a typical Kickstarter. You know, throw in some minis, throw in the PDF or the hardcover or the fancy hardcover. Stretch goals, you know, get an adventure, get this, get that. But where it really changes is at the $100 or the $125 level where you get some of that swag. Plus you get access to the Playtester Discord where you can read and test drafts of the rules, and you get a one-month subscription to the Twitch channel where this live stream game is going to take place. So that is where this is really a different Kickstarter than anything we've seen before, uh, because it is more about the streaming game, I believe, than it is about the product. That is not to say the product won't be cool. That is not to say the product is not a great idea. But... If this were you or I, Chris, writing this product, we're we've got a little following, right? On the internet, uh-huh. you'd say a little bit. I, I would say and, so. And you know, cool product. Yeah, we could get twenty, thirty, forty thousand, maybe, if we really, really pushed it. Sure. And this is way, way beyond that because this Kickstarter is selling celebrity. It is, in fact, selling celebrity. Matt Coville is a celebrity. If you're not aware of who Matt Coville is, he has a YouTube channel. Um, He's also a game designer and has been a game designer for a very, very long time that taps into tabletop role-playing games. He worked on both Star Trek games and also into video games. He's worked on some pretty big AAA titles. So uh, that's a thing also. Plus, like you said, he's a streamer, so he's streamed some games. Uh, that is a thing. He's also associated with Critical Role. There so you go. You just he, said the magic words. Yes. I mean, really, all of those things together make him very, very marketable for himself. I mean, he's taken a lot of time over the course of his career to to create an audience for himself. And, yes. and in the last few years, uh, expand that audience in a, in a lot of ways. And this is a very focused uh, move for him. And uh, he's even surprised by it. I went and watched his uh, reaction video to the fact that there was like $500,000 in on this Kickstarter, like within hours. And uh, he was even shocked. He's like, I did not expect this to be this. Like they, they had a very um, small kind of goal for this Kickstarter and they weren't expecting to get, you know, if they like got to a hundred thousand dollars, they would have been happy from what I can tell. And this is just beyond anything they thought was going to happen. Right. And one of the big things to note is that there is the highest pledge level is $500. And basically you get everything with that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, 
you know, normally that highest level of a Kickstarter, you might get 10 people, 20 people putting in for it. Um, they put a limit of a thousand on that highest uh, tier of backing, and already 500 people have backed at that level. Yeah. So if you have 500 people backing at $500, Chris, I'm no mathematician, but that's a quarter of a million dollars right there. That is, in fact, a quarter of a million dollars right there. So so that's what that little extra bit of celebrity gets you. It gets you that um, th- those people willing to shell out $500 for, for what you're selling, including that live stream game uh, that you get access to. Yep, and, and one, access one to the, the thing- back end. Yep, yep. And one of the things I wanted to mention was I was reading a thread on EN World about it. And people were, you know, pretty first they were saying who's Matt Colville and then once people explained who he was, everyone was like, Ah, okay, I see. But one person said it just goes to show that there's a massive market for D and D supplements. Watsy should be putting out content at a faster rate. And I raged. I did my one rage for the day, Chris. Uh, I only get one <laughs> per day and I, I was screaming at the screen, I scared my cat. No shut up uh, this is all about celebrity and streaming uh this is about matt Covell's brand it's not about people wanting this uh content this game content so badly that they're paying a million dollars for it that that that's not that's not it um so yeah shut up that is correct people pay a million dollars for something like seventh c because of what seventh c is People right. do not pay a million dollars for strongholds and followers. Sorry. Like, good, solid book, man. Don't get me wrong, but you're absolutely right, Sean. And that's fine. Like, okay. I'm super happy and very content that this Kickstarter is doing exceptionally well. I'm like, oh, that makes me feel a lot better because of all the stuff that we tend to do, right? <laughs> right. And and it also helps us see what the market is because this is the Wild West of RPGs right now. We don't know. You know, we have a historical look at how RPGs sell and how fast or how fast they can rise, how fast they can fall. We don't really have the best idea of where all of the streaming comes in. Mm-hmm. And this helps us, you know, put a number on that. And it right now really the does. number is a very, very high one. Um, so we'll see. Yeah. And they're going to take this money and build a studio. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's all. And not a small one at this point. Like, they had some ideas for what they wanted for their studio um, that were kind of on the smaller side. But now that they have more money and, and like, they can do their dream thing, they're going to... And I'm sure there's going to be more streaming than just the one that they were going to do. Like, I'm sure that this will now become... It, it already kind of was, but will now become his his real gig, like, completely and totally. Yep. Absolutely. All right, let's move on to uh, the next thing, right? Uh, so, DM David... Do Dungeons and Dragons players hate linear adventures? That's the question. And uh, he says, not when DMs avoid two pitfalls. Would you like to lead us into this? Well, yeah. First of all, if you've listened to this podcast in the past, you know that I love DM David. I love his analysis of different parts of the game. And we uh, actually had lunch with him at Winter Fantasy. Chris and I. We did, in fact. It was really a nice time. Yeah. So... Fittingly, this uh, this article went up today, and so I grabbed it. And really what this is is a good summation of the fallacy of players hate linear adventures. That is not necessarily true. Players like or hate different things, and while it's true that many players don't like to have their agency removed from them, that is not the same thing as a linear adventure. A linear adventure can still give players lots and lots of agency in different directions. So what... Uh, dm david's article is saying is basically there is this overarching assumption especially from grognards uh, of which i am sometimes one that linear adventures are bad linear adventures are not necessarily bad adventures that take away player agency are bad two separate can we can we can we uh can we reference a few episodes of ours? Uh, I mean, I can't remember what the names are offhand. I probably should have went and looked them up. But on Down with D&D, we talked about adventure design. And we talked about what the differences between a linear adventure and a railroad are. And we've talked about that a number of times on Misdirected Mark. And I'm pretty sure there's a bunch of uh, episodes on Pandas Talking Games that talk about linear adventures, sure. too, and what the differences are between a good and a bad one. Yep. So, you know, if you're interested in this topic, first check out DM David's article, because it really is a good summary of of what this whole conversation is about and then check out those uh, other podcasts that Chris mentioned uh, where we 
do a deeper dive into this. We really uh, the, do. Yeah, there is one thing that that uh, DM David said that I'm going to take a little bit of an exception to, mm-hmm. and it's probably more just a definition thing. But he said, make no mistake, players still like to face a few clear choices. Linear adventures grow better when they include decision points that pose options. And then he puts in uh, parentheses, of course, such adventures no longer qualify as linear. And and I, I don't think so. I want to qualify this. Linear adventures can still allow for many types of choices. Those choices don't uh, don't just include where to go, but they can include how to proceed. So you can have a linear adventure where you go from one place to the next to the next because the plot forces you there, but you can still give lots of choices within that. So no matter... Um, it doesn't matter that you need to go to the castle next. What your choice can be is how do you get there? Um, what is your goal when you do get there? Uh, are you going to fight your way in? Are you going to sneak your way in? Can you just walk in as an ally? Are you going in as an enemy? Do you go in in chains? <laughs> or do you go in being celebrated? Uh, do you go in with the evidence that you were supposed to collect? Or do you have to go in without it? All of those things, the adventure is still linear. But there are many, many choices that can still be made by the players. I agree. May I do the uh, may I do the, the the game designer thing? Yeah. Cool. So imagine that you have an adventure that has um, you going from point A to point B to point C. That is your linear structure. In my opinion, you can have a wonderful set of linear adventures because the choices that you make in A will affect B and C, and then the choices that you will make at point B will affect C. And that is, in my opinion, exceptional linear adventure design because that's that's what a linear adventure is. You go from A to B to C, but yet the choices that you make will affect how B and C play out. Mm-hmm. Yep. So if we define linear as just the encounter that you have to go to from the previous one being already set there are lots and lots of design elements that could change within that while still having the encounter be a set piece mm-hmm. exactly so anyway check that check that article by dm david out all right let us move on to the next thing winter fantasy we were both there yes we were and it was a blast it really was. I had I had a wonderful time, a wonderful time running eight slots of games, because I did. I ran eight slots of games, all tier three, all for characters between level levels 11 through 16. I got to use a Death Knight in one mod. I got to use a Baylor in one mod. I got to play a Dragon Turtle in a mod. It was so much fun. Um, I also got to start seeing some of the, the design flaws in higher level D&D and how magic can be um, a little too void the problem in certain situations. So that's a thing. Yes. Uh, I only ran... Uh, three slots of the return of the Lizard King adventure with the same table playing all, all 12 hours. Uh, so it was a lower level adventure, but still a great time. Uh, it's nice to see different uh, groups tackle problems in different ways, even though it's the same adventure. So, so that was fun. And I also ran two um, adventure writing workshops where we talked about game design. We looked at the template for Adventures League uh, adventures and basically just reviewed some work and, and talked about some pitfalls and things to avoid and things to try to do when you're writing an adventure. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, else, what else did I do? So, so I ran all that ale, which is a great time. Um, I ran a couple of sessions for the guys from the other cast, which is an AP podcast uh, that Tracy Burnett runs. He wasn't there, but a bunch of his people from his uh, group were. So that was cool. Nothing like gaming with podcasters. I enjoy that. Um, I drove out with uh, Garrett Crow of, of Misdirected Mark and Cindy Moore, who hopefully will once again have a show on Misdirected Mark. I will not be talking about what that is just yet because we're working out some of the details, but that's neat. And uh, while Garrett's uh, threat detected and threats from Gallifrey is not really going to be putting out shows anymore, he's also working on a new show that I want to put out. So there's that. Nice. It might, might have to do with Alpha Complex. Um, on the... D&D side of things, like, I got to play a game with you and James Intercaso, so that doesn't happen very often, like, me playing a game with you, plus uh, James Intercaso is pretty awesome. 
yeah, that that was a fun night. We got back to the hotel, and there was James along with I, I can't. I mean, it you want me to go around? Chris I can tell you who's there. Like I know Chris exactly. Lindsay, no, let, let, let me do this. Chris Lindsay uh, from Wizards of the Coast. There was you. Um, Robert Alanese, one of the writing directors for the Bald Man Games convention created content. Uh, Will Doyle, uh, you know, the guy who helped write uh, the Tomb of Annihilation season. Mm-hmm. Uh, then there was Robert Aducci. Yep. Uh, former AL admin. Yes. There was, of course, James Intercasso running the game. Uh-huh. There was Lisa Chen, yep. who was is one of the new Adventures League people, of course, and Cindy Moore. Uh, and you forgot Rich Lescaflair? Oh, of course. Rich was there, yeah. Yeah, and then you also forgot um, – no, I think that was it. Yeah, that was Rich. Rich was the, the last player in that game that Th- we were missing. Right. That's right, because he was playing one of the other Paladins. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. And, yeah, so there was nine players and uh, and James and Tricasso running his Seller of Death uh, Guild Adept adventure, and it was a blast. We we were sort of ridiculous. I mean, well, there was, of course. yeah, of course we were. But you know, even that, even that, even if all I had done was sit through that two three hour adventure, that tells you so much about running games. Just the way, just the way James handled things, the way the players handled things, the way it was done completely theater of the mind, uh, yet was still fun and tactical and. And it was just it was just a great experience and, and a great look at a way to play the game that's super fun. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And the other great thing about Winter Fantasy is no, you, you you turn around and it's like, hey, let's go get lunch with uh, Teo Sabadilla uh-huh. or any of the AL admins, all of whom were there, or you know this Guild Adept or that podcast podcaster or this or that. It's just. People are everywhere, and they're just so willing to talk and to share time with you. Uh, it's it's wonderful. It really was. Uh, I mean, I got to meet Eric Meng- Mengi, which is that was cool. Um, I think he's mad at us a little. I got to meet uh, Alan Patrick in the flesh because I hadn't actually like said hi to him or anything like that, so it was neat. So I think I've met all. No, you know, I haven't met all of them. I didn't. I didn't actually talk to Travis Woodall or uh, Bill Benham. I probably should have, but I didn't. Uh, you know. Saw Greg Marks a bit because we we know each other from other other shows, so uh, that yep. was neat. And and was... even if you don't play D and D, that show is great because the uh, Gen Con board game library is there, which is at Gen Con for like four times the price as you can play it at Winter Fantasy. Mm-hmm. And you could just grab any of these thousands of games, and there are also people there willing to teach you games or play games with you. And you know, even just to go play that. If you're a board gamer, would be great. But Rob Schwab was there running uh, Shadows of the Demon Lord in his Punk Apocalypse game. Oh my god, I can't Pel- wait. He's... <laughs> yeah, uh, Pelgrane Press had people there running some of their games. Uh, so Knights no, Black Agents and Time Watch. So yep, yep. There are other Five E campaigns. Rich Lescouflair was there running Esper Genesis, his science fiction Five E game. Mm-hmm. There's a Living Divine campaign, a Living Arcanus campaign. It's just it's just a great show all around. It really, it really is, and it's uh, it's not so big that it feels like you're being overwhelmed. It's just you, you see a lot of the same people wandering around, and you can talk to a lot of the same people. And just it's cool. It's it's nice, laid back. It's a lot of fun. And, and last but not least, no, no matter what convention it is, when I talk to or hear from new DMs who are DMing, you know, there for the first time. You always come back, and on the the discussion boards uh, for like Bald Man Games, you hear them say, "You know, I was a little little scared or had some reservations about doing this for the first time, and this was the best gaming experience of my life, and I've been playing for thirty years." Hmm. Or, you know, I just started DMing because of watching Critical Role or Acquisitions Incorporated, and I wasn't quite sure how it was going to go, and it went it went well, and everyone there was supportive of me, and I. I felt like I was like coming home to my own tribe, hmm. and it really is uh, that experience. That was my experience 20 years ago when I first went to Gen Con and ran a game, and and it's still happening now. And that kind of leads into our next topic, Chris. It does, which is preparing, running, and playing a convention game, our main topic for the evening. So it's uh, safe to say that even with the hobby growing as it is, 
And with people using social media to take it in and to undertake their own new experiences, a majority of D&D players play at home, even if playing online, with pretty much the same group of people. Uh, nothing's really wrong with that. We're per perfectly fine with that. We think that's great. But for those who want to expand their horizons, uh, meet new people, have new experiences, become better at the different aspects of the game, you know, role-playing, character building, table management, etc., there's nothing better than running or playing in public, whether at a small game day or a large convention. I mean, think of it as watching or participating in a live stream game in person, and it's very, very educational. So, uh, Sean, with that introduction, my question to you is, is why would we ever play D&D at a convention? You know, I've heard this rumor, Chris, that playing D and D at a convention is fun. Um, yeah, me too. For some level of fun, right? Like, yeah, I mean, this is we we like the game. We want to play D and D. We want to play D and D more. And where's the best place to play D and D more? Where you've got tens or hundreds or thousands of people also playing all around you. Uh, so that's why I would suggest to to play D and D at a convention. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, go ahead. I, I was going to say because you know people basically play D and D. For five days straight, right? Like you can play D and D or any role playing game at conventions constantly. But we're going to focus on D and D because this is down with D and D. Sure. So there you go. And one of the other reasons to do it is to to learn to clear up misconceptions, uh, like clear up misconceptions about people. When I was growing up, I was with this. I lived in a kind of t tiny xenophobic town. And so I played with my group, and I was the youngest member of the group. Everyone else was a little bit older. And I would say, hey, you know, maybe we should go to this local little convention. And they'd tell me how the people there are weird and they play strangely and, and, and all these things. And so I just kind of believed that. Like, okay, maybe we're the only, you know, cool nerds and all the other nerds are really weird or something. And when I started going to conventions for real, everyone's like me. Well, hopefully not exactly like me, but, um, you know, they're there to have fun and they're different in their own ways, but it's all about the hobby and it's all about sharing experiences and telling stories and laughing and, and, you know, cheering and, and sharing stories. So, uh, you know, that cleared up that misconception for me about what a convention would be like. Mm -hmm. Like I, that makes perfect sense for me. Uh, for me, it was a lot of the same, not necessarily about the people, but about, you know, being out there amongst everybody and seeing how everybody played the game, either the same or different. Right. And, uh, we're all pretty much the same and it was pretty great. Yeah. It also can clear up misconceptions about rules because sometimes when you are in a, an isolated group, you may not even realize that the DM you have is kind of running their own version of the game. Mm -hmm. And again, nothing wrong with that, but unless you see how other groups interact, uh, you may not realize that, you know, hey, you don't have to roll an attack roll for Magic Missile, even though my DM makes me because it's a holdover from 4th edition. Uh, yeah, things like that. And there are also rules that go along with something like an Adventures League play. Uh, so, you know, you can learn those things as well. Yeah, absolutely. And if you're looking to... Um learn more about the game and how it can be flexible and whatnot. You can run into people who will bring in new rules or their own rules mods or rules from other games to create different experiences. And then you can see how the game can be shifted and changed in a number of different ways. Absolutely. And it also can clear up uh, misconceptions about experiences. You may think that you hate theater of the mind play and would only ever want to play on a grid until you come up to a DM that's really, really great at running a Theater of the Mind game. And then you realize, you know what? The reason I don't like Theater of the Mind all that much, or thought I didn't, was because the DMs I've had weren't really good at it, or didn't know these tricks, or hadn't really done it enough to, to f learn all the nuances of it. But now that I've tried it, boy, it's great. Or vice versa. You, know, you may think you only like Theater of the Mind until you have someone bring Dwarven Forge terrain and make it all beautiful and uh, pull a full-scale uh, old-school DM, Randy Farmer, on you and just have this artistic beauty in front of you. And then you might uh, come to appreciate the craft that can go into uh, running a game like that. Absolutely. Like, that is... Um... That is a thing, right? Like the the whole experience of play. Um, I mean, 
I was a pretty heavy minis guy for a long time on my tables, and then I played with somebody who was not that at all, who basically just sort of drew a relative positioning map on a whiteboard and like kind of like marked where we were on it during the course of this action-y pulp adventure thing, and it changed my whole worldview of how to play role-playing games. Like, it became not a board game anymore, it became a story game for me. And that was a long time ago, uh... For those who know me now, but that was a it was a formative experience, and that was that was a game at a con. So there you go. All right, so we've talked about the why, you know, to of of D and D at a convention. Now let's talk about how to play D and D at a convention. Ah, yes. I think the first and most important thing is to uh, leave your preconceptions of how the game might or should be played at home. Like you have a style, you have some thoughts. Um, if you bring those expectations with you, you'll probably dis- be disappointed because expectations will probably be dashed. Mm-hmm. And you can also reach out to people who have done this, who have gone and played at a lot of conventions, and hear hear about their experiences. Don't necessarily trust just one person's opinion because opinions uh, can vary mm-hmm. and experiences can vary. So you know, get a feel for, hey, if I go, should I try to play every single slot or should I – leave myself a slot free uh, you know should I do this should I do that you know, get get those ideas and uh, get yourself in that mindset of what you're going to be experiencing and then when you do sign up try, play a variety of games you know do play an adventures league or some organized play uh, game but then also go find a guy who's just running his homebrew adventure uh, play that see how it compares to to your organized play experience um, Run a game where you make your own character versus one where the DM is going to give you pregens. Run a go play a high level game, uh, play a low level game, assuming that you're familiar with the rules enough to do that. You know, uh, do do all of those things and get that wide variety of experience to find out what your preference is or shattering your mis- your, your preconceptions. Absolutely, I mean I've done. Every single one of those things, Sean. Like, I've played pregents, I've played my own characters, I've played weird stuff, I've played the standard stuff. Like, it's uh, it's it's good to do. It teaches you a lot about the game and about people. Yep. And when, um, you, do, when you do get to the table, be clear about your preferences. That, that, that doesn't mean, you know, overwhelm people with your opinion and say, I'm not doing this unless we do blank. But just say, you know, in the past I've really liked blank, so... The DM can then learn from that and maybe adjust the game to to better meet those preferences. But also sit back and listen to the preferences of others. Uh, you know, listen to the other people's experiences, and then be ready to roll with it once the game gets going. Yeah, I um was running for the last group of people. Uh, they I since I was running uh, the adventures that I was running were seven nine seven ten and seven eleven. And I ran them all uh, either twice or three times, a couple of them three times. Uh, I was getting the same group of players for um, for runs of these adventures because I was running them in a row. And the last group, uh, the, one of the players walked up and they were all friends playing together. I was like, oh, I like what I see because I had a battle mat on the table and some minis off to the side. And they're like, I don't really like that theater of the mind stuff. I'm very much interested in, in being able to see what's going on and having the tactical combat. So I was like, well, okay, I know exactly how I should be running this game for these players because I have that skill set in my in my back pocket to run a game like that. And it was only and I, you know, did it that way because somebody mentioned it like it's good to be clear so that people can, you know, latch onto that and play the game the um we can all kind of play the game together in a way that is satisfying for everybody sure uh so that's that's playing now let's talk about running games mm-hmm. um, so if you're going to run a game at a convention there are some things that you should do to prepare and that preparation will differ slightly if you're running an organized play adventure versus one of your own homemade adventures well um, Do you want to talk about OP and I'll talk about homemade? Does that sound good? Let's do that thing then, Chris. All right, let's do that. Go ahead. So on on the organized play side of things, first you should be aware of what running an organized play adventure means. It means getting familiar with the rules of that campaign itself. You know, what are the rules for the character creation? 
if someone comes in and sits down and starts playing a character that is not legal for the campaign, it helps to be aware of that. Usually other players will jump in and say, oh, you know, by the way, that uh, that character uh, race is in a book that's not yet legal for Adventures League or will never be legal for Adventures League, so you can't play that. Uh, but just be aware and know what to do if that happens. Um, it's always good to read the adventures ahead of time and then read them again. Um, at least twice, I would say, assuming you have the time to do so. Also, play them ahead of time if you get the chance. Many conventions will run what they call slot zeros. The slot zeros are named such because the first slot of a convention is usually called slot one. So a slot zero are slots that are run before. So often the night before the convention starts, the DMs will get together and run the adventures for each other so they can see from the player's perspective where are some pitfalls, where are some things that aren't clear, uh, where are some things that need a little smoothing out, or where you as the DM will have to come up with something cool to insert because the adventure gives you that chance or the adventure lacks some information that you will have to add. Um, also, when you're prepping, bring a hard copy of the adventure, since many conventions will not allow you to access power cords at the table because they are fire hazards or tripping hazards according to um, whatever convention center you're in. So it's always good to have something in case your laptop or your iPad runs out of power. Um, that's, that's very true. Yep. If you are just getting into running organized play and you're not super experienced with the rules or with the campaign, it's often good to start with the lower level content that's being offered. So instead of asking to run the tier three and tier four stuff right off the bat, think about running the tier one and the tier two adventures, just because that gives you less stuff, not just in the rules, but also in the campaign to have to sort through. That's not saying that you can't on your first time out run tier four. I'm sure many, many great DMs out there could do that. Um, but it's better to start slow and work your way up than just jump right in over your head, uh, especially if you're not quite sure of your footing. That is a wonderful suggestion because I'll tell you right now, I haven't run a whole lot of D&D between levels 11 and 16, like maybe like three or four games worth of it. So, you know, like 10 to 12 hours, 10 to 16 hours of the D&D at that level. And I ran eight slots of that this weekend and um, it was educational. It's a thing. Yeah, you uh, sometimes sometimes you learn Sometimes it's a butt kicking and you are providing the butt. Oh man, I I, I might have for like um the first two slots I ran, then I then I turned it the other way. I'm like, all right, let's go. Yep, it's go time. And yeah. finally, um, even while you're prepping or even while you're running, many of these organized play campaigns will have staff on hand to answer any questions you have. Don't be afraid. There are no stupid questions, right? There are just stupid people that don't ask questions. So go out there and say, you know, I'm not sure how this works. Most people are super helpful, and they they want you to have the best experience. They want your players to have the best experience. So get on the mailing list beforehand. Ask questions at the at the show. You know, reach out to people who have been pointed out to you as campaign staff members or volunteers or even veterans who have been doing this for years and years, and they're. 99% of the time going to be super helpful and tell you exactly what you need to know and probably tell you more than you even thought you needed to know. That's, yeah, they will. I mean, I'm lucky because I have Sean and I have Cindy and uh, a couple others, so like it's real easy for me to ask them questions, but go make friends. There you go. Now, if you're not running an organized play campaign, say you're creating your own homemade adventures to take and run into campaign, a lot of that stuff is similar, but Chris can help you out on some other things. Oh, yeah. So one of the most important things that you need to do is um, is your blurb for the convention book. Like, this is a big deal. Like, you want to write something that's clear and concise so people know exactly what they're getting into. You're basically setting expectations with your blurb. Um, like, you need to uh, think of the audience that you want there. So, like... Who do you want at the table? Uh, new or experienced players, uh, tactical or narrative players. Like, do you, like what kind of game are you looking to run at this convention? And what kind of game are, are you putting in there? So, if it's a dungeon crawl, make sure you un make sure you make it out to be a dungeon crawl. If you want it for um 
for not new players because you're going to be putting like some ninth level characters out there. Then make sure that you put experienced players out there and that they're going to be playing ninth level characters in the blurb. Like that that is a that is a thing because you don't want somebody who doesn't know how to do that showing up. Um, and if it's theater of the mind or it's like this kind of like really um, interesting exploration or social sociopolitical game, you want to make sure that's that's in the blurb too, so that you are not going to get someone who's there to actually fight. If uh, fight everything, because that will mess up the the things that you have planned. Because you've uh, one upset them because they now feel like they might be wasting their time because they feel like they might have been lied to. So that already puts them in a bad mood. And two, uh, you have somebody at your table that was not the kind of player or the kind of play experience that you were looking for from the game that you were bringing. Um, did I miss anything there? I think I covered most of that stuff in the beginning. Yeah. Uh, all right, cool. Yeah. Next thing. Um, pre-gens versus homemade characters. I'm going to say for homemade adventures, 95% of the time, maybe even 99% of the time, you provide the characters. Make sure that you make the characters and make sure that they fit inside of the adventure that you are running in some way, shape, or form. Um, preferably. Like, that is a good way to do it. That's a good draw for, uh, for you as a game master and for people to want to come back and play your stuff again later. Like, like, oh, that, that game master put some serious effort to put together this really cool adventure with these characters that really tied into the adventure. Like that is quality stuff. Now, if it's more of a dungeon crawl thing that is more, um, more like tomb of horrors esque or whatever, and you just have a stack of characters that people will be dying through. And that's the thing that you wrote up. then that's fine. Like no problem. You want to DCC it up in D and D I'm down. Um, as we say around these parts, cause we're down with D and D after you've made sure that you've put that in your blurb and you have that all kind of together, for your game, go playtest your game. Get your friends together, playtest the game to make sure it works the way that you are expecting it to work. Find out where the flaws are and get inside of it because this is your thing. You wrote it, make it work for you, and then play it so that you know that it's working for you and where the holes are. And it, these experiences are great for people to come and play them because they give you an opportunity and them an opportunity to play different kinds of things. Like, I got to play in a dungeon at a running gag a few weeks ago that was this very weird um spatial anomaly type dungeon and that's the kind of stuff that i like to run so it was a really really cool treat not that i expected to be playing in this game i just kind of jumped into it it's a really cool treat for me to play in a game that had that feel to it because i don't often get to play in games that have that feel to it so uh, i mean that's that's the kind of stuff that you can get so like if you if you want to play that socio political game, you can find it using the D and D rules to see how that actually works. You can probably go and find that and then play it. If you want that, you know, spell jammer in space game that you can't really get right now because it doesn't exist in uh in in the IP of Dungeons and Dragons, you can probably go find that and get that these days. So that's neat stuff. Sure. Uh, I think that covers everything there. Is there anything else I, that you wanted to mention that I missed? No, I think it's just if the only thing I was going to add was if you are going to allow players to bring their own characters, just put that ahead of time in the, uh, you know, in the write up, in the uh, catalog, the convention catalog, and be clear about what kind of characters that you want. Because yes. if you just let players make their own stuff, they are going to make their own stuff. For instance, seventh level player's handbook, no feats, use the standard array. As opposed to showing up with 20th level, I have every artifact in the book and then some that aren't, and I made this homebrew class that uh, at 10th level characters can kill with, with a glance. Yeah, like, what's, that's just ridiculous. But, yes. you know, you, you need to... Uh, Sean, well, Sean is being exaggerating. Oh, uh, no, he's, he's not. Oh, Sean's, <laughs> seen, Sean's seen a lot of things. You've made Sean refer to himself in the third person now, Chris. I hope you're happy. <laughs> Sean had to disassociate for a second because of the horrors that he's seen out there in the world. <laughs> you know it. Oh, man. All right. So that is um, that is the homebrew thing. That is the uh, running, preparing for what you're going to run and running games at conventions. So what about at the table? Like, what, what do we do when we get to the table? Okay. So if you're running a game at the table at a convention or, or any other public event, you probably don't know well who your players are. So when they come to the table... Um, be inviting, be friendly, smile, introduce yourself, ask them who they are, uh, make some small talk. This is not just to, you know, settle everyone in and put them in a good frame of mind to play the game, but you can also learn things. Um, 
if you have a tendency to mumble, start by speaking clearly and slowly at first. If you have to practice, practice. Uh, ask questions to determine the personality of your players. So one of the first things I ask the group when they're all sitting around waiting for the game to start is, hey, when did you start playing D&D? It can actually tell you a lot. If they say they've been playing since first edition, they probably have a certain mindset for how the game works because they've seen a lot. As opposed to someone who said, well, this is actually my first game and I'm coming after I saw Acquisitions Incorporated at PAX a couple of years ago. I'm usually a video game player, but I've decided to give D&D a try. Mm. They may have some different expectations for how a game is going to run. You can't obviously tell everything from a person with one question, but you can get an idea for how things might go in their mind versus how they might run at the table. And you can start making adjustments even then. What do you think about it's, that, Chris? I think that's those are great tips. It's actually probably way better than the thing that I do, especially at least for the Adventures League stuff. Um, I mean, I start playing the game, right? Like, uh, And by playing the game, I mean like I find out who their characters are and their names, and then I start asking questions. Like my go-to question this last con was, why are your characters in Chult? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that told me a lot about them and gave me stuff about their characters. Like there was a group that was like, uh, we're just hanging out with that person because we'd like to go adventure with that person. And then it, uh, eventually it was all of them were doing that, except for one finally was like, I came here to, with a book because there was this terrible thing going on and whatnot. And I'm like, well, it's unfortunate that that thing has been solved. But like there's still other things going on because they, they were there to to see what was up with the uh, with the um, the death curse and whatnot. Yeah. But at one second I was like, so I was making the joke. I'm like, so you all just decided to follow each other and you ended up in Schult, right? Like that's how that worked? I mean <laughs> – but but that is that that tells you something about the kind of play that that group is looking for. Absolutely does. And this for Winter Fantasy, I had the advantage of having email addresses and the names of my players ah. ahead of time because it was just one table and they had to specially register. So mm-hmm. I got to email them and I asked them a similar question. Only mine was, this mage named Cena is important in your life for one reason or another. She has affected your life enough that it is the reason you are an adventurer. Tell me how she she affected you in that way. And the answers I got were then woven into the beginning of the adventure. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that, that did the same thing. It told me a little bit about the characters and the players and what they thought was important enough to tell me. And, you know, what kind of imagination they were bringing to the game. So mm-hmm. I think that's that's a fine way to do it. I just start earlier, you know, before the game even starts, while people are taking their dice out and getting everything arranged. You know, I start the questioning then to break the ice, but to learn a little bit. Yeah, I would say do it Sean's way. That's actually probably better than my way. My way is um, my way is very game focused. Like I'm. Mm-hmm very interested in the game and playing the game with, with players. I I actually probably couldn't tell you the names of most of the people who are actually at my table, but I could tell you all their character names. And, and that's fine, too. And yeah. one of the reasons I did it that way and do it that way is I was with these people for 12 hours. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, that that's different than just running a two-hour or four-hour game. Sure, uh, absolutely. So another piece of advice is when you start the game, give Give very clear instructions about what you want the players to do. Give them small tasks to assess their ability to follow directions and stay on task. So one of the first things I do is I hand out an index card, and I give them instructions. Write your character name, your name, etc., etc. And then I watch. I step back and watch and see how many people get it right the first time. How many people have to look at the guy next to them or the gal next to them to, to fill out the information correctly how many people lose the index card before they even get a chance to write on it Uh, how many people forget that i had just asked them and if if you mess that up there's nothing wrong with that there are millions of types of people in the world and the million types of wonderful people in the world Uh, but that tells you that maybe if you are looking for a person to uh, bring everyone together you might want to look to the person who got the instructions the first time, wrote everything correctly on the card, and gave it back to you without a ton of questions and without getting confused. That might be the person who who brings the party together when chaos is happening at the table. You know, the person who is a little 
little out there may still have great ideas and may be super creative, but they may not be the person to rely on for these more mundane uh, tasks that might have to occur at the table. I, yeah, all right. of that. Right. Yeah. If my... there's a form, if there's a table that the for, table, if there's a form the table has to fill out, hand it to the person who knows how to fill out the index card on the first try. Uh huh. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, I, I have I have yeah. nothing to add to that because you were perfect. Like that was that's that's yeah exactly what you yep. said. So so once you get once you take in the social cues and get you get these answers from the people, then you're ready to adjust the game based on what the player wants and needs. Mm-hmm. Um, if everyone's putting their mini out on the table the first thing before you even pull a map out, you you might know, hey, these people are used to playing with minis. We're gonna go a little bit tactical. Yeah, this is the uh, thing where you need you, to read the table. Read the table. Yep. If if in the first combat, uh, the one guy starts using his polearm master feet which means that he gets an opportunity attack every time something approaches him, you're going to want to go a little bit more tactical right off the bat because that player is going to be constantly asking you, where are they? Did they, did they come within my reach? Are they already within my reach? You know, how is that? So uh, you know, you're going to go a little, a little bit more tactical if you have uh, feats like that or other tactical rules elements like that in play at the table. So I like to start, uh, if I can, with a simple combat and a simple interaction to see how the players do. Um, if the player of the wizard is using his crossbow over and over again at plus two rather than using his cantrips at plus five, then you get an idea that maybe that player isn't as up as possible on the rules and you might need to make special adjustments based on that. Now, if the wizard player gives you the reason why he's doing that and it's a role-playing reason, rock on, no problem. But if the whole table is using sub-optimal tactics and you already know that this adventure is tough, you may have to be ready and willing to scale things back. Absolutely. Along those same lines, if you start with a simple interaction a simple role-playing scene that's supposed to be the quest giver saying, hey, my son just got kidnapped. Could you go to the uh, tower and save him from the wizard? Uh, And that scene turns into like an hour-long role-play. Then you may (laughs) need to adjust the, uh, the adventure in other ways. So use those quick, simple encounters to continue to gauge uh, the party's, um, expertise, their desires, their wants, their needs, and so on. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, if you're playing at a convention, that usually means time limits. Oh, yes. Usually you have a certain amount of time to get the adventure done. So think ahead, both during preparation and during play, about what encounters can be shortened or lengthened or skipped. If you are running way too fast, uh, maybe a counter that you could insert or move around, an encounter maybe they skipped, figure out how to bring that encounter to the party rather than having the party go to it. Um, Drop an outside time limit on the adventure that will have an in-game event occur if you need to. Like, say, for instance, you know, it's a kind of a not not unsizable dungeon crawl and there's a Baylor at the end of it. Uh, Well... And be like, well, if we get to 30 minutes left in the game, the Baylor actually just breaks out. You can fight it outside without any of your help. Have fun with that. There you go. And then if you're at a convention, especially an organized play environment, there's usually paperwork to do. Uh, it doesn't, maybe not a lot of paperwork, maybe only 10 or 15 minutes. And then maybe you need to clean up the, the table because another uh, group is coming in right after you. So know if you need to leave time for that and work that into your time estimation as you go. Mm-hmm. I would always suggest trying to finish about 30 minutes early so that you have that 15-minute variance if you if you run a little long. Like, aim for that half an hour before your slot is over if you're running at a convention. Um, that's that's plenty of time. It also gives people the time to get to their next slot if it's right afterwards. Yep. So, I, anything to add, Chris? Yeah, one more thing. Um, if you're running a game at a convention, especially for a company, and there's, like, slots and whatnot, um, and even if you're running your own home stuff, I would highly suggest trying to get to your game uh, 20 minutes to 15 minutes early and, and setting your stuff up. Uh, it's just it's just good manners. It's good. It gives you some time to be comfortable. It gives you some time to get the feel for your play space so you're not rushing. Yep. Assuming that that is an option for you, it's always good to do. Mm-hmm. 
I guess it's really the last thing that I have to say. Excellent. I think we uh, I think we covered it there. I think we did too. I thought that was a really lovely and wonderful discussion. And with that, I will say everyone out there in listener land, thanks so much for listening. And let's do a few Patreon shoutouts before we go away. Uh, David Morris, Troy Sandlin, Blake Ryan, Batman, Corey Johnston, uh, the Mad Wizard Merwin who patrons us even though I give him money, which is hilarious. Uh, Zach Goins, uh, Christopher Gray, whose happiest apocalypse on earth is about to come out or has already come out. I think it's out there already. Uh, Robert Dorgan, who uh, I very much enjoy playing games with him on Monday night. And the um, incomparable master of paper, paper craft himself, the old school DM, Randy Farmer. And speaking of patrons, if you'd like to be a patron of Down with D&D, you can click on the link to our Patreon page on the website. And for a paltry $2 a month, you can get yourself a shout out like we just gave out. Mm-hmm. Or for four fifty a month, you not only get that shout out, but you also get our pre-production show notes. And we try to give patrons little extras every now and then. And if you're a patron or if you're thinking of becoming a patron... Uh, let us know what you'd like us to give you, because we yeah, can do absolutely. That. We we could actually customize some of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. If you can't help us monetarily, but you want to give us a boost, you can do so with an Apple Podcast review. Those reviews help, even if you're not listening to us via Apple Podcasts, since many other podcatchers use Apple Podcasts as their way to rate and rank the shows, and that would make us much more visible. Or you know, you can just give us shoutouts on social media, which helps as well. Please, on Facebook and on Twitter and on G+, and on wherever else you're social mediating these days. Pinterest. So, Sean, yeah, Pinterest. Sean, where can you find, uh, where can you find the, the incomparable Sean Merwin on the Internet? I often find myself on Twitter, at Sean Merwin. I love to find myself on Facebook or on the Down With D&D G+, community, where we have great discussions. How about you, Chris? So, you can hit me up, at Down With D&D, on Twitter. Um, you can also hit me up at Misdirected Mark. That's the, the network Twitter. Or at The Light 101 if you just want to talk to me directly. Uh, the best place to go, though, I think, is the website where you can catch other great shows such as this one The Gnome Cast. Several gnomes from the gnomes do get together to talk about a gaming topic and themselves a little bit in an effort to, be avo- to avoid being thrown into the stew and entertain you. Down with D&D is a Misdirected Mark production, the media arm of Encoded Designs. So, Mad Wizard, what are we going to do now? We're going to go kill some monsters at a convention. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? This whole party. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. You're down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. I'm down with D&D. Yeah, you know me. Who's down with D&D? Yeah, you know me.